Welcome back to Art History Happy Hour. My name is Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. We used to focus our episodes around current events, and obviously there have been an awful lot of current events um, in the past I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, it's just been, you know, uh, a nationwide movement uh, for social justice and also a global pandemic and also the insurrection uh, at the Capitol. Yeah, it's just been a little, it's just been a little busy. So um, in thinking about everything going on in the world, you know, one thing that uh, Sarah and I did want to touch on was that last, that last point, these, um, the, the insurrection in, tw- in January. And uh, is insurrection what we're calling it? I haven't really. Insurrection, I mean, you've got it in our notes as, which I think is perfect, as protest slash riot slash insurrection. We're referring, of course, to the occupation of the U.S. Capitol by Trump supporters who were convinced that they were fighting uh, in the name of liberty and freedom or something along those lines. The election was stolen and they were going to um, install Trump as president. And uh, some people still believe, apparently, that this is that Biden's actually dead was one conspiracy theory I saw and that Trump is simply waiting in the wings to prove some kind of point that I don't quite understand that escapes logic or at least my logic. Um, So we thought about the, you know, the, the long and fraught history of the relationship between art and revolutionary politics and uh, insurrections. And, you know, we were thinking uh, a lot about the history in Western European painting of depicting those uh these radical movements and just as a a throwback to our the previous iteration of our podcast um i'll remind listeners that we had an episode that was we created in the wake of the uh shootings at the offices of the french journal charlie hebdo so if you're interested in you know kind of revolutionary visual culture i encourage you to go back and listen to that episode since we covered that ground a little bit we thought that perhaps now we could think about a different um, moment, uh, not from the 19th century, which was in many ways a century of revolutions, um, but from the 20th century. And thinking not about the um, the history and tradition of figurative political art, including caricature, which we talked about in that Charlie Hebdo episode, um, but thinking about abstraction and the role of abstraction in um, in revolutionary politics. And so, of course, we, that story really starts with the Russian Revolution in uh, 1917. Today, we're going to focus really on uh, the Russian painter Kazimir Malevich and uh, his uh, invention of abstraction. And I just want to point out that there are many different uh moments in which abstraction is invented. It happens again and again and again. Invented, quote unquote. Yeah, exactly. Invented, quote unquote. Um, There are many people who invent abstraction, including many women who invent abstraction, who um, have been written out of that story. And um, I'm referring uh, most particularly to the painter Hilmoff Klimt, who was the subject of a major solo show at the Guggenheim a few years ago, which highlighted the fact that she might have actually been the very first abstract artist. Although, of course, I mean, now we're getting into sort of a rabbit hole, but even talking about the invention of abstract art is incredibly problematic because, of course, there are non-Western traditions that make abstract art. There are also traditions that are outside of the fine art canon that, you know, relate to craft that also are abstract art. If you think about, you know, quilts that women make, for example. Um, so you so, see how, why we had to restart the podcast. There's just too much to talk about. <laughs> There's just too much to talk about. Exactly. 
um, all of it super good and uh, a way of helping us understand our, you know, the political moment in which we live. In any event, we don't we don't necessarily want to put Malevich on a pedestal on a pedestal as the guy who invented abstraction. That's just categorically not true. Although that was the dominant art historical narrative throughout the 20th century, um, him and Kandinsky. Uh, but uh, we do want to talk about um, Malevich and his own relationship to abstraction because of its political context, because of the way in which he specifically understood his artistic project as being tied to uh, the Russian Revolution. So we're focusing in this episode on one particular painting by Malevich um, that is known as Black Square, um, sometimes called Black Square on a White Ground. And this was a painting that was made in 1915, though Malevich stated that it was made in 1913. And when you look at reproductions of it on the internet, you might see it, uh, you might see the date as 1913, but we now think it's it's probably 1915. And it seems at first glance to be precisely what the title suggests, a black square on a white ground. But looking closer at it and thinking more deeply about the painting complicates that. And I have to give the caveat that I've never actually seen it in person. So uh, my descriptions of the work will be based on viewing reproductions. What we have in this work is a black square in the middle of a canvas. And the canvas itself, importantly, is also square shaped. The space around the black square is actually painted white. So it's not the white of the of an unprimed or even a, a primed canvas. It is actually white paint. Now, when you look at reproductions of this painting, you should note that the painting has degraded. So when you look at these reproductions, you'll see a lot of cracking on the surface, and that's not part of the original work. Um, so we'll have to kind of discuss it for the time being as if that cracking isn't present. There's a whole nother set of analysis that could be done around the painting in its current kind of degraded state, but we're going to sideline that for now. Although the square is at the center of this canvas, if you look closely, it appears ever so slightly off kilter. And it's kind of hard to tell when you look at that original work from 1915, but it becomes more apparent when you look at different iterations of the Black Square. And Malevich did four of those over the next couple decades. And as was the case with uh, State of the Arts, our old podcast, it will also be the case that any of the images that we mention in our podcast will be available on our website for you to look at. And our new website is www.arthistoryhappyhour.com. So there you'll see four different iterations of the black square that range from 1915 to about 1932. And in the later versions, the irregular shape of the square is more apparent, um, especially the one from, for me, the, the one from 1923 is where we see that especially being the case. And so what you might have initially thought or intuited as a perfectly proportional scaled down form of the canvas, the black square as kind of mimicking the form of the canvas itself, is not actually so. Uh, it is, again, slightly off kilter, so it's not a perfect imitation of the shape of the canvas. And the effect of that is that it both the square both reminds us of the shape of the canvas, but it also challenges the form of the canvas as the supporting structure of the work. Just to bring what Sarah's talking about um, into relief, uh, in the 
1950s, the very end of the 1950s, the painter Frank Stella would also make a series of black monochrome paintings. And he would create black planes um, within the, the shape of the canvas that clearly referred to the shape of the canvas, that repeated its dimensions. Or, for example, you know, um, he would begin by um, cutting the canvas in half with a line, uh, first across the horizontal um, central axis and then across the vertical central axis. And then he would repeat that division again and again until he reached the edges of the frame. And so this, this kind of compositional device we call deductive structure. So in other words, the, all of the, um, the, the shapes within the canvas are directly referring to or directly deduced from the actual um, shape and dimensions of the canvas itself. So what Sarah's talking about here um, is not quite deductive structure because the, the black square on the one hand, it appears to perfectly sort of reiterate the overall proportions of uh, the canvas. Um, like it's sort of been, as Sarah said, kind of shrunk down and sits inside with it, but it's not actually um, rectilinear like the canvas itself. Whereas in, in Stella's case, um, the, uh, you know, the lines are usually rectilinear, you know, directly referring to the rectilinear frame of the canvas itself. That's just sort of what Sarah's talking about here, this sort of tension where it looks like it's deductive, but it's actually not quite because it's slightly off kilter and not quite rectilinear. Taking the, the uh, Stella tangent a bit further, I actually, so I'm teaching a course on 20th century art this semester. And when I teach that course face-to-face -face, right now, it's all online. When I teach that course face-to-face, I actually begin the semester with Stella's Defana Hook, uh, in part because I want to sort of force the students to grapple with a work of minimalism and, and kind of dig into something that does not seem to contain, um, to consist of that much, but also then tying it to what we're going to get to later in the politics of Malevich's painting. One of the things that when I actually get to minimalism in the class, I bring up is you know, Stella was so adamant in that these works didn't mean anything beyond themselves. But then that with a work like Defana Hawk, you kind of have to ask, well, why then make the title of the work a line from an anthem that was used by Nazis? It, you know, it's it, there's there's kind of a when you're a Jewish painter, right? Yeah. So it's kind of but a bit difficult to make a case for it being completely apolitical when you have a title like that. Anyway, um, it ties in a bit to what we're talking about with politics, so that's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, but to continue with the black square, another thing that becomes more evident when you look at the various versions of the painting that aren't as degraded as the original is the visual fluidity of that idea of figure and ground. Um, so when we when we think of those terms in, in formal uh, in their formal purpose, purposes, just generally speaking, the ground is the background on which some kind of figure, whether it's representational or not, sits on top of. And you might be inclined to think of this black square as on a white ground, as it is titled sometimes as black square on white ground, as that suggests. But when you look at the ones that haven't degraded as much in particular, it looks just as much as if the black square is a void, as if it's sinking into the canvas rather than sitting on top of that white ground. So it's another way that we see Malevich employing this 
pure abstraction, this non-representational form of abstraction to kind of challenge what we think of as just the very basic formal um, elements of of visuality. And that that's an important note because actually um, that, that figure-ground relationship is seen as hierarchical. So the figure is the privileged term. The you know the the figure is the important thing in that relationship, and then the ground is the background that exists primarily to put the figure into relief, to bring the figure to our attention, and to define it. So, um, you know, you can think about this being true even in practical matters, like going back to the Renaissance with the workshop of a great master like Raphael. The master would primarily literally paint in the figures and then the ground, the background, the landscape would be handled by the studio assistants, by the students, um, because literally the figure was more important than the ground. And so, um, you know, when Malevich is unsettling this hierarchy, unsettling the relationship between figure and ground, making it unclear, actually, which might be the figure and which might be the ground, that has a... a I mean, I know it stretches our sense of the term politics to say this, but to Malevich, that would have potentially had a political connotation, right? Upsettling the hierarchical distinctions in the same way that the Russian Revolution was about upsetting the hierarchy between the uh, the ruling class and the proletarians. Yeah, and we'll get into that more in a bit. So in, in other words, what I'm trying to suggest is that the Russian Revolution was precisely about the, the the ground of the proletarians becoming the figures in the narrative of history, um, switching from sort of like, you know, the unimportant background to the important figure in the front of the main part of the story um, in the same way that the white here becomes not just the background, but also the foreground, actually, the like the more important framing device in a way. It actually helps now, I think, to back up and talk a little bit about the the context um, that Malevich was emerging from and and what he was trying to achieve. So Malevich was part of this avant-garde art scene in Russia, um, which as early as 1913 was grappling with the emergence of these radical styles um, out of France and Italy uh, known as Cubism and Futurism, respectively. So, um, you know, Russia has always had a very fraught relationship with the rest of Europe. Uh, that was true um, as, you know, that was as true back then as it is now. Um, so without getting into all of that, I'll just say that Russia had this like very profound encounter with European modernism and Russian artists definitely felt a certain pressure to sort of come up with their own answer, their own version of um, the kinds of sort of cutting edge avant-garde uh, painting styles that were emerging out of uh, France and Italy. Yeah, and just to clarify, Cubism, uh, in, a, in, in very broad strokes, kind of starts to emerge in France um, in the late 19 aughts. So, you know, around 1907, 08, 09, and then gets in the work of Picasso and Braque, and then gets picked up by other artists in Paris. And then um, shortly thereafter by the artists who would become known as futurists in Italy. So in 1913, Cubist visual syntax, um, both in, in France and then as it's picked up by the by the futurists, is it's been around for, for a few years. We can look to the work of some other Russian contemporaries to understand how they initially responded to uh, these other movements. So, for example, if you look at the work of Natalia Goncharova, and uh, apologies, I don't speak Russian, um, 
uh, you can see um, how uh, she herself, for example, was absorbing these influences. So there's one painting she made called The Birth of Christ from 1910. And you can see that there is um, what is referred to within art history very problematically as a quote unquote primitivist style. So a style that, you know, was thought to be, um, you know, uh, not following in the footsteps of the naturalism of the Renaissance, but instead either returning to a medieval understanding of um, of representation that is more quote-unquote abstract, so um, the figures being a little more flat, um, for example, but also at the same time drawing upon traditions from outside the Western canon. You can see here in this particular painting, The Birth of Christ, that um, there are there's some sort of affinity with the work of Paul Gauguin, who is actually a post-impressionist painter, so in the generation immediately before um, Cubism that very much influenced Picasso. You could also see with the sort of angular, sharp forms, um, some sort of response to German expressionism, where you have these um, German artists who are trying to um, transform this increasingly abstract way of representing the body into an expression of the anxieties of modern life in the 20th century, um, sexual anxieties, social anxieties, the anxiety of living in urban space. So um, yeah, we can see them responding to, you know, sort of like late 19th century and early 20th century um, modern art, but sort of being drawn particularly to the kind of art that spoke to the Russian experience. So the Christian subject matter was hugely popular in Russian art. And so, for example, the fact that it is a scene of the birth of Christ um, and that they are responding to um, the work of Paul Gauguin, for example, who himself, you know, uh, very famously painted um, images of Christianity, including a work called The Yellow Christ that is in the collection of the Albright Knox Art Gallery, where I work as a curator. So yeah, so you can see them starting to respond to this kind of um, European modernism. The faceting of the bodies becomes almost cubist in the way that they are breaking down volumetric forms into flat planes that kind of seem to float on the same plane together rather than to recede in space. They also start showing a kind of um, fascination with modern technology and with speed and movement that we often associate with the futurists. So um, the same painter, Natalia Goncharova, also made a work called The Electric Lamp from 1913. And I'm actually shocked I didn't talk about this in my dissertation. <laughs> um, so uh, my dissertation was precisely about um, the fascination in modern art with electric light. Um, and uh, I was focusing mostly on the 1960s, but in the sort of, I think the second chapter of my dissertation, I wrote about some of the um, precedents from earlier in the 20th century of all of these painters who were painting everything from gas lamps to arc lights to the new electric bulbs. Um, and so in this painting called Electric Lamp, there are three yellow orbs that are glowing um, sort of illuminating uh, the whole scene, but it's it's pretty abstract. It's really hard to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of sinuous curves. Um, there's some sort of red parallel lines. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not really figurative in any way, but it is trying to capture with like the you know the, you do see these little rays of light sort of radiating out from the center of the orbs. It's trying to capture this um, energy, literal energy. Um, and its potential to sort of transform how we see the world, which is represented, of course, by this move from figuration into abstraction. So, um, so they're very fascinated with, again, again, like how art can reflect 
a new way of looking at the world, just as the electric light was transforming how we saw the reality around us. Malevich himself, uh, right around this period, you know, in the early 19-teens, was also very much influenced by really his contemporaries who were also working right after Picasso and Brock to um, to sort of transform that particular way of doing cubism into a new kind of style, um, which is known as salon cubism. So in his painting, um, for example, called Reservist of the First Division from 1914, you see uh, his use of different collage elements layered together, um, referring to, for example, um, cut newsprint and printed text, um, which very much reminds us of um, the kind of cubism idiom. And then in his painting Women with Pails, Dynamic Arrangement from 1912 to 1913, you see that kind of flattening of space, the use of shadow that suggests a volumetric form. But when you add all of these shadows together, you don't get the sense of a coherent object in space. So yeah, so Malevich is very much influenced by all of this um, you know, contemporary European painting coming out of France. Um, and and out of Italy. And, you know, Malevich's contribution really will be to condense the lessons that he is that he is learning um, from these other painters and to sort of take it to a next level. I just wanted to tie back to um, what you brought up about primitivism before, because I think we're inclined to think of, of primitive, I mean, you, as Tina pointed out, primitivism can refer to a number of different kinds of pictorial idioms. Um, but I think when one thinks of primitivism, they are probably more inclined to uh, think of it in terms of drawing from African or oceanic or, you know, Pacific cultures. But importantly, it can also refer refer to more kind of local forms of, of art or representation. And that is something that is, I think, importantly evident in Malevich and Goncharova and in um, Gauguin's work in the first part of his career. We usually think of Gauguin in Tahiti and his really problematic Tahitian paintings, but the Yellow Christ, like Tina brings up, uh, that's at the, the Albright Knox, you know, there he's looking at traditions in the region of Brittany in France, which was seen as this kind of more backwater, quote-unquote, primitive uh, area. And um, with Malevich, with Woman with Pails, and um, Goncharova and a number of her works, it is drawing more specifically from what we what would have been seen as quote unquote primitive traditions and styles that are more tied to a specifically Russian context. And I think that's an important thing about Goncharova and Malevich to note before getting situated in the moment of of the Black Square and then the Russian Revolution. To Sarah's point, if we go back to Malevich and the painting Women with Pale's Dynamic Arrangement, um, as the title suggests, you can sort of figure out that there is a figure here that is holding um, two pails across the shoulders that are connected by wood or something like that. And, you know, this is a, a basically pre-industrial form of labor. This is manual labor. This is not somebody working with a factory. This is not, you know, an electric light bulb. It's not something very modern. It's something that's drawn from a local tradition that goes back for generations. So um, primitivism, in a way, could also be referring to, as Sarah said, with like Gauguin and Brittany and the traditions there, where he likes to paint, you know, the peasants of Brittany dressed up in their historical costume, which was quite distinctive. The Russians were doing the same thing in a way. They were trying to combine their own unique history, their own 
um, traditions, uh, in, you know, pre-industrial traditions, um, with a new vision of the future. To return to what I was trying to say earlier, which again is sort of an, uh, you know, problematic teleology to say that like, oh, well, you know, cubism walks so suprematism could fly. But yes, in a way, um, Malevich is, is looking at these, these new painting traditions and also at Russian art and its history and trying to come up with something that would be Russian and also really speak to the political moment of Russia. And so he comes up with this word suprematism to describe the effect of this art that he is trying to achieve, which is about elevating the supremacy of what he called pure feeling over the demands of representational art, which was, of course, the demand of art from the past. So, I mean, some suprematist works are representational. I mean, now that I've said that, I should qualify that and say, you know, there are some that seem to um, represent a particular thing, but others are really examples of what we would call pure abstraction or non-objective painting. Non-objective being an early word for um, abstract art, meaning that there is no object there. For example, if we look at Malevich's painting, Suprematist Composition, Airplane Flying from 1915, it's only really representational because of the title. I mean, I think that if I put this in front of you and said, what does this look like? Zero out of 10 people would be like, oh, it's an airplane. I mean, it looks nothing like an airplane. It's a white background with um, two horizontal red bars. Um, on top of that are one, two, three, four, five, six yellow um, rectangular planes of varying dimensions. And then uh, below that, in the bottom half of the painting, we see one, two, three, four, five black planes, again, of varying dimensions. So I think it's actually three black and two blue. Oh, yes. Sorry. <sighs> three black and two blue. <laughs> ah, looking at paintings and reproduction. Yep. Yes, 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 of course. So I just wasn't looking. <laughs> it wasn't big enough on my screen. Yep, um, so, yep. so three black and, and uh, two blue um, sort of horizontal bars on either side. So, you know, nothing about this. I mean, I don't know if I was a, if I was a proper social art historian, I would go back and look at old photos. Well, photos wouldn't help me because photos would be black and white. I would go back and read descriptions of like early airplane technology in Russia. For all I know, maybe the airplanes were painted red and yellow and black. And so that part of it is supposed to be representational, but it's clearly not in its form really referencing anything uh, sort of literal about the airplane, except for perhaps um, the idea of the propeller. So the red horizontal bars sort at the top there sort of could seem like propellers. Um, but anyway, I mean, you have to do a lot of work um, to get that out of it. So so really what's being presented here is not so much the, the look of an airplane, the appearance of an airplane, but instead the feeling of an airplane, right? To go back to the idea that suprematism is about quote unquote pure feeling. So what is the feeling of an airplane? The feeling of an airplane is about overcoming gravity. It's about a mass that levitates. And so if you look at this, um, you see all of these masses, these rectangular forms that do appear to levitate. For example, um, you know, they're not uh, oriented so that they're stacked on top of each other as if their weight is like uh, in a column that's being supported by the, the shapes at the bottom. Instead, you have all of these squares that don't quite touch each other. Um, and that are on diagonal, that are sort of oriented in a diagonal line. So it's very clear that they don't rest on top of each other and then rest on the quote unquote ground or sort of bottom um, of the painting. 
So they really do feel like there are forms just floating in space. So it's less a depiction of an airplane flying and more a kind of abstract representation of the idea of uh, mass overcoming gravity. And I think another important aspect of the painting that you say, like you say, evokes that feeling and it feels so self-evident when you say it, but just the fact that these forms are all diagonal. They're, they're at different pitches of diagonality within the work, but that is, I mean, this is not a new idea. It's just something that um, Malevich is really distilling down to something very minimal in a work like this, which is that diagonals create a sense of motion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like one of the truisms of art history is that, um, you know, horizontal and vertical lines feel very stable to us. Um, If you imagine the horizon line uh, that we see off in the distance, you know, that never changes. If we imagine vertical lines, like the lines of trees standing tall in a forest, you know, those don't change. But the diagonal is always used to represent a body in motion, right? So you can think of a tree falling down, or, you know, a, a, a fish jumping out of the water or something on the horizon of the seascape. Like, whenever there's a body in motion, it tends to f- to be represented on a diagonal line. And, you know, then the artist has to figure out, well, you know, how do I suggest that this thing is rising up versus falling down or vice versa? And you usually yeah. do that with context clues. But anyway, yes, yeah, Sarah's absolutely right. Diagonals are always used to convey the idea of movement. And so it's very important that basically every single one of these shapes is falling along a diagonal line relative to the frame of the canvas. None of them are oriented parallel to any of the sides. They're also falling at a different rate in relation to each other. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, the yellow planes sort of line up in a way that suggests a rising from the left to the right, or perhaps a falling from the right to the left. And then uh, the black um, planes sort of line up in, in a line that kind of meets that yellow line in at a 90 degree angle. I think it's also worth pointing out that an important development in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century is there's a lot of effort to rationalize systems of representation, whether it's in terms of color or form. And so that idea that a diagonal is universally a signifier of, of motion is something that people are thinking about and writing about in scientific or pseudoscientific treatises. It's something that Kandinsky is very interested, you know, Kandinsky basically tries to create or expound what he thinks are the universal characteristics of lines and colors and and so forth. So Malevich is also in dialogue with a, a lot of those discourses around representation in fundamental formal capacities, not in um, representational form. Yeah, I know. And Sarah, this is such a good point that, you know, a lot of this early abstraction is very utopian in its dream to create a kind of pictorial language that would actually transcend any cultural specificity. In other words, it's the dream of universality. It's the dream that we can create a kind of art form that is legible to everyone, no matter whether they're Russian or French or Italian, no matter the language you speak, no matter the cultural tradition that you come from, that this is a a pictorial language of pure, you know, color and shape, and that these are quote unquote universal elements. And of course, Uh, We need to push back and say that, you know, even the language of color and form is not, in fact, universal um, because our understanding of these things is always tied 
to cultural tradition. So my famous example of this, you know, when I teach undergrads is we think that something, for example, like a painting that shows a story, let's say a biblical story, where the narrative progresses from left to right um, is, you know, sort of obvious that like, oh, yeah, the story starts at the left and it ends in the right. But of course, it's only, you know, Western um, traditions where you read from left to right. There are other traditions where you read in other directions, like up to down or right to left. So even reading a painting left to right is something that's culturally conditioned, that's not universal. So we just have to be very careful that the language of form is in fact sort of not universal. But that was certainly the dream, is that they could create a kind of universal utopian language um, by, by reducing art, by getting rid of narrative, by getting rid of any cultural references and just you know, experimenting with color and line. Now that Tina has used the term utopian, we can start to get at how Malevich and suprematism ties to the revolutionary ideals of the moment and of the artists in his cohort. So suprematism, this this movement that Malevich essentially founds, really came onto the scene with an exhibition titled 0.10, The Last Futurist Exhibition, which took place in Petrograd in 1915. And there's a really famous photo of the exhibition that shows a lot of Malevich works. You can see airplane flying there at the bottom right. But most important is, uh, for our purposes, is the black square, which as you can see in this photograph, was mounted high up on the wall, straddling the corner, so not flush against the wall. It's sort of protruding out from that corner. And there's two points that I want to emphasize here. One is that Malevich is making us aware of the canvas as an object, and that ties back to some of the points that Tina was making earlier about the importance of thinking about the canvas and um, deductive structure later on with someone like Frank Stella, and uh, this is one of the aspects of Malevich's work that Stella definitely picks up on later in the 20th century. Um, And the other point I'll make is that that particular position of the canvas in this exhibition is the place that would, in Russian homes, traditionally be occupied by a religious icon, an icon painting. And so we can read Malevich's move here of, of, you know, having the painting mounted in this way as evoking that position of, of, of the icon painting and maybe perhaps suggesting that suprematism and a work like the Black Square being the kind of icon of suprematism, speaking to the multiple significations of that of that term icon, it could become like an icon painting, even perhaps replace traditional religion, which is for artists like him and many of his contemporaries, an outmoded kind of mindset that has led to the suppression of of, of the masses for so long um, and that they are trying to sort of displace through revolutionary practice and art and so forth. So going more deeply into that question of what does suprematism and what does the Black Square have to do with politics and revolution, We have to remind ourselves that Malevich was working in an incredibly fraught time in Russia. So the Black Square was painted in 1915. This exhibition was 1915. This is two years uh, before the major revolutionary moment in Russia in 1917. Um, And that had been fomenting for years, all the way back to, one could argue, uh, the failed revolution, what's often considered the failed revolution of 1905. Incidentally, if this is something 
something you're interested in, there's a great podcast series um, called Revolution or Revolutions. I can't remember. Uh, and that is covering the Russian Revolution right now. So for Malevich and others kind of in his circle, not this non-objective painting, the suprematist painting, should be part of the political program that's developing and that will kind of explode with the revolution. It's a way of throwing off the shackles of bourgeois society through this rejection of traditions associated with pre-revolutionary paintings, you know, and especially of representational painting and representational art. So their aim is to create a new kind of radical art that was completely separate. And speaking to what Tina mentioned before, these kind of utopian ideals, a new kind of radical art that would be for the masses. And it's for someone like Malevich, it's not enough to represent political action. So create a representational painting of a riot or a revolution. Rather, it's necessary to completely overturn the standards and systems that have defined art for centuries. There's a really great essay by Malevich, and, and we have a fair number of his writings, but there's one that I want to quote from here from 1920. So this is a few years after the revolution, five years after that um, exhibition in Petrograd. And it's a text in which he is in many ways combating what was perceived by other artists at, in the moment as the problematic separation between art and everyday life that Malay, even Malevich's suprematism is not grappling with enough. So um, I think when I when I read this, it'll it'll make a little bit more sense. So here's a quote from that essay, the title of which is The Question of Imitative Art. So Malevich says, now we have an army faithful towards a new principle in economic life and the vanguard of art. The ec economic life of the new world has produced the commune. The creative construction of the new art has produced the suprematism of the square. So he's in this essay, equating the revolutionary moves of his brand of abstraction with the radical economic and, and political modes of this revolutionary moment. And kind of in the wake of, of suprematism, the black square is picked up and mobilized in, in different ways, um, and, and in some cases for more overtly political purposes than what we see initially. So for instance, Malevich's kind of friend and, and fellow artist Ella Zitsky produced an homage to Rosa Luxemburg, the, the radical um, political figure who uh, was murdered shortly before this painting, which was done in approximately 1919 and 1921. Ella Zitsky puts the black square at the center of that painting, which is still non-objective, kind of non-representational, but it's a callback to Malevich's work. The black square also becomes the seal of the group Unovis, um, founded by Malevich. And Unovis is, is an abbreviation for the, the title of the, the name of the group, which translates roughly as the champions of the new art. Now, Malevich would come under fire from other artists who considered suprematism still too insular and not actually available to the masses. So out of suprematism would come a different movement called constructivism, which put the radical abstraction of suprematism in the service of things like propaganda posters, um, architecture, and even clothing. This attitude of constructivism, you know, putting the abstraction of suprematism in the service of 
posters, architecture, clothing. So the things that, you know, we use in our daily lives, you know, art that we see, not just when we go to an art museum, but that would surround us um, in our daily activities. This is like one of the foundational ideas of avant-garde art of the 20th century. The idea that you can make art, not something that is put on a pedestal, like literally put on a pedestal or separated from the space of life, but instead is embedded in our daily lives. So you will see, you know, throughout the 20th century, artists sort of reinventing or reprising this idea of the collapse between art and life. And that can take different forms. And for the, you know, uh, for the constructivists, it was really about adapting what they could do as artists, their understanding of form, of shape, of color and line towards creating new versions of the objects that we all interact with on a daily basis, like our clothing and our architecture. So, um, you know, there will ultimately be a sort of battle throughout the 20th century between people who think that the radical potential of art, you know, like the constructivists, is that it can be sort of absorbed into everyday life. And the people who think that the radical potential of art is, in fact, the fact that it's autonomous, meaning the, like separate from everyday life um, and, and popular culture. So these are essentially two positions that, you know, artists and the people who supported them uh, could take to define the relationship between abstraction and politics. But as art historians, we can also look back at art and understand the way that even abstract art uh, necessarily emerges from social context and is therefore embedded in larger questions about gender and class and race, even if no bodies are visible. So in other words, as our historians, we're able to look back and say, okay, well, you know, this art that's abstract, that doesn't, it's not figurative, it's not showing bodies, it's not political in a representational way, is still political because of the way that it responds to um, the moment in which it emerged, or, you know, the way that it actually became even a possibility that there were certain social conditions that led it, you know, artists to be able to imagine um, abstract art. So just a brief trigger warning um, in what follows, I'm going to be speaking about racism and slavery and the murder and harm and trauma visited upon Black people as it relates to Black monochrome painting. The one thing we didn't talk about yet with Malevich's painting is why it's Black. And this is going to be a bridge um, for this conversation into the art of the 21st century, so and also the late 20th century. So why did Malevich pick Black? Well, Black is, you know, technically speaking, it's not a color. It's the absence of color. Black materials absorb all wavelengths in the visible spectrum and therefore reflect none of them. So we're not actually seeing any color when we see black. We're seeing the absence of color. It's the negation of color. And that's why um, it's so important for Malevich to make this work black, because it is precisely color that is considered like the, the true core property of painting. So you know, um, other art forms like sculpture, for example, you know, it sort of owns volume and mass and drawing owns line, but painting owns color, right? Color is really the special purview of painting. And so if you want to cancel out the history of painting and make something truly revolutionary and new, you have to cancel out color. That's really the core of it. And so um, black has often functioned as a kind of ground zero um, if you want to sort of annihilate painting and then um, invent something new. So it wasn't until 2015 that we realized that there's actually another uh, layer to that story. Um, it was then that a microscopic analysis was done that revealed that Malevich had scribbled a phrase 
under the square that basically translates to battle of Negroes in a dark cave. And this refers to a racist joke that first appeared in the 19th century in a, a work by the, the French artist Alphonse Allais. And it is essentially just a, a rectangle of black in the format of a history painting, you know, a painting that would normally be used to represent um, important historical events, such as battles. And this square of black was uh, subtitled Combat of the Negroes in a Cave During the Night. And so this is a joke at the expense of, of black skin. And we actually can see in this microscopic analysis that there's that phrase and that there also was a kind of, um, you know, cubist style painting originally under the black square. So there was supposed to be a kind of figurative element. Um, and that was accompanied by this, this old joke. Um, this means that in some sense, the black square could be imagined as itself a kind of joke at the expense of black people, um, like that original image by Alphonse Allais. Part of the goal of art history now is to acknowledge the way that racism and colonization are not peripheral to the field, but actually part of its, uh, its very core, um, both in the sense that you know art history as a field emerges in the 19th century in this moment of European colonization, but also in the sense that paintings themselves and the artists who make them are also embedded in these social structures of racism, racism and colonization. And so what art history now has to do is to think about how we tell our stories and the way that we center whiteness and we center privilege and instead um, think about telling the stories of people who have been oppressed or at least understanding better the mechanisms of that oppression. If you'd like to learn more, please check out our website, arthistoryhappyhour.com. There you'll find our episode blog, which includes images and links to materials we discussed in this episode, as well as a link to our Patreon account, uh, if you'd like to support us by becoming a patron. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at arthistoryhour at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash arthistoryhappyhour, and on both Twitter and Instagram at arthistoryhour. Thank you.